This is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Tuesday, uh, August the 8th, 2023, on Sunday night. Um, I watched um, a movie about David Bowie, Teenage Daydream, uh, his a film by Brett Morgan, uh, which was kind of interesting about Bowie. And in part of the film, uh, there's an interview with Bowie in which he argues that rock stars are the equivalent of contemporary gods. Um, and his analysis, David Bowie's analysis, I think, was satirical. He wasn't necessarily thrilled with that. Certainly in our coverage of Rock and Rollers on Keen On, we've dealt with the gods. We, we had one show on Led Zeppelin uh, with a writer, uh, Bob Spitz, who has a massive bureaucracy, an 800-page bureaucracy on Led Zeppelin, almost like a Led Zeppelin uh, album, 800 pages worth. Uh, we've done uh, a show about the biblical story of Leonard Cohen's October 1973 so-called Resurrection in the Sinai Desert, actually is a wonderful book by Matty Friedman, appropriately biblical, of course, for the great Leonard Cohen. Uh, we did a show about Charlie Watts, perhaps the most famous drummer, uh, certainly in the most famous rock and roll band, uh, the, uh, the drummer who sadly died a year or two ago, the drummer in the Rolling Stones. Uh, Charlie's Good Tonight, Paul Sexton's book about uh, the life and times, not just of Charlie Watts, but of the Rolling Stones. And then a couple of weeks ago, uh, we did a show on the great Bruce Springsteen on his album, uh, Nebraska, uh, with a wonderful writer um, and a contributor to the show, Warren Zane's Deliver Me From Nowhere. It's a very strong recommendation. All these, of course, are the superstars, the Led Zeppelins, the Charlie Watts, the Leonard Cohens, the Bruce Springsteens. They are for better or worse, the gods of modern rock and roll. But not everyone is a god. Take, for example, a band called the B-52s. Everyone's heard of them. We were, of course, familiar with the B-52s as a bomber, too. Uh, they're currently winding down their career in Las Vegas at the Venetian Resort. And there's an interesting new book about them, which is just out uh, by Scott Crenny, uh, co-authored it with Bridget uh, Adair Heron, the story of the B-52s, neon side of town. And Scott is joining us. He's based in um, Huntington, New York, just uh, east of Manhattan. Scott, why the book on, uh, on the B-52s? You're a big music fan. Uh, you've written a lot of uh, creative uh, fiction and nonfiction. Why did you choose to write a book about the B-52s? Well, Bridget and I were actually approached about writing the book. Um, we lived in Athens, Georgia, up until about nine months ago. And we were known in town as people who could write, as people who were musicians. And someone suggested it to us, mentioned it to a friend. They mentioned another friend. Next thing you know, we're having lunch um, and getting ready to write a proposal. Um, I was surprised to find there had never been a book published about the B-52s before. Um, as we went further in the project, we found a lot of people who tried to write a book about the B-52s, including the band themselves. And for various reasons, they either didn't come out or it was self-published and only available on the internet and not lengthy enough. Um, and so the chance to kind of go really in-depth on this band that to us had always been sort of misconstrued or, or not completely defined 
in a, in a single sentence adequately um, was a real challenge and very interesting to us. It's, of course, rock and roll is a, is a massive history. There's a, there are libraries of books on the various bands. But do you think a, a book about someone like the B-52s, who we've all kind of heard of, many of us aren't familiar with their music or certainly their story, is a better way of approaching the history of rock and roll than books about Led Zeppelin or Bruce Springsteen? Um, it's certainly more inclusive, and, and I think it's more inspiring. You know, I, I think that, you know, you were referring to rock gods earlier. You know, there's, there's this sort of idea of a masterpiece or, or the genius who creates this thing and, and bestows it onto us, the audience. And I think that's very disempowering in, in a way. You know, I think we're all capable of being artists. I think we're all capable of finding things in, in ourselves that can be expressed. Um, and to me, a band like the Beef D2s, um, because of the fact that they did it with minimal equipment, with different types of people than you normally see on the rock, Mount Rushmore, um, inspired people to do their own thing. And I think they were coming out of a sort of um, inspiration from punk, you know, say the Sex Pistols, um, some of the art rock stuff in the 70s. And, you know, you look at the, a band like the Sex Pistols, who even though they were four men, inspired bands like the Raincoats, the Slits, all kinds of different people who never would have considered picking up an instrument before, being artists first rather than musicians first. And you find people breaking rules is kind of the history of pop music and kind of the history of rock and roll. You know, the people you mentioned, um, as much as I, I respect their music and I like them, you know, what created rock and roll was someone like Little Richard or, or someone like Chuck Berry, um, people kind of melding these forms together, people who were maybe outsiders or doing something that wasn't artistically respected, but was fun first. And um, its own kind of rebellion, if that makes sense. I don't know how rebellious Led Zeppelin is other than their personal behavior, you know. Yeah, smashing up hotel rooms. So how, how would you describe the work? They, they, were, they were formed in Athens, Georgia in 1976. How would you describe both their career and their work if it was one to, 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 to make some, some generalizations? Absolutely. Um, they came from Athens, Georgia, which had a very hip record store. They, they were stocking Devo and Perubu and Sparks and, and a lot of English import music. Um, they were very knowledgeable. They were had, were had access to an art school, an art museum that was doing really incredible things and bringing a lot of sort of forward thinking, um, both teachers and artists into Athens. Um, to the point where Chris Franz, a drummer from Talking Heads, uh, they were playing a show in Atlanta. This is before Beef Dudes were even a band. He saw them at a party and assumed that they were art kids. He, they reminded the kids who went to RISD, Rhode Island School of Design, which is one of the most prominent art schools in America, which is where Talking Heads formed. He identified them as that. Um, but the Beef had a separate thing, too, of kind of being Southern and three of the members growing up working class and sort of taking this sort of, um, I, I don't want to say impoverished aspect, but this idea of we can make our own rules, we can do things our own way and finding something in that and then bringing it to New York City and having people in New York City really respond to it at, at, on an artistic level. Um, they, they change everything from kind of being all black or, or monochrome and very serious to kind of being satirical and very colorful and, and playing games with irony. You know, the Beef Dudes are the first band to play the Mud Club. Um, they're a huge inspiration for the Club 57 people. Keith Herring, Kenny Scharf, um, a guy named Stephen Hager, who was an art writer for The Village Voice, um, wrote a book about New York City art in the 80s and said the B-52s were the, literally the pivot point from before and after into what happened there. Um, they were invited to play 
a festival for William S. Burroughs to honor his return to New York City. It was put on by Semiotext. Um, in some ways, I think they've always kind of been their own worst enemy as far as giving themselves credit, um, whether it's a fear of seeming pretentious or, or whatever it is. Um, they're artists, and they've just, you know, they've defined themselves as being a camp tacky dance band. Um, other people have called them New Wave or even LGBTQ pioneers, and all those definitions kind of leave something out. You know, they're, they're, there's something, when you, when you reduce it to a simple sentence of B-52s, it doesn't completely tell the whole story. Um, even their farewell tour, you know, they had Casey and the Sunshine Band as their opener, and, you know, it, it's fine party music, but it's, that's not a band doing any favors for their artistic legacy at that point. And I think that Bridget and I really wanted to write the book because we saw them not just as those fun things, not just as, you know, camp or tacky, but also as artists in their own right. And we thought we could really dig deep into the lyrics, the music, and how they presented themselves over the years to really kind of make that case for them as artists. What are their most memorable songs in your view? Um, according uh, to one piece I read this morning, uh, mm -hmm. their, their song, uh, Love Shack, is profoundly misunderstood. Is that one of their better known songs? And which of the, the songs do you think most capture their spirit? Um, their, their two best known songs are Rock Lobster and Love Shack, certainly. And um, I would say that both those songs are featuring all three vocalists. And this is a band without a clear front person. Um, As one wouldn't expect, given, given the way the, the idea of a front person was probably an anathema to them. Yeah, I mean, you know, there, there's, there's, they're not a clear front person. You have two women in the band, one of whom is playing a musical instrument. Um, actually, they're both playing musical instruments because Cindy plays bongos. Kate, in the early days, for the first three albums anyway, played the bass notes with one hand on her keyboard and lead parts with another hand on the keyboard while singing. Um, you also have gay men in the band as well. Um, all of those things were very disruptive, for lack of a better word, or unusual or, or unique. But the music itself was also unique, too. And even if it had been made by five, you know, normal straight guys wearing black T-shirts, it would have been interesting music in its own right. Um, as far as the definitive song, you know, I think part of their, their power is that fluidity. So a song like Deadbeat Club is really well known as well. And that's really a Kate and Cindy singing lead on that song and Fred kind of doing interjections. Um, I would say Rock Lobster for its subversiveness. Um, it has boys in bikinis, um, girls in surfboards. Um, it has a lot of punning, like very, very Joycean or Lewis Carroll type game going on language. Um, baking potatoes, baking in the sun, past the tanning butter, like it's sort of weird free association anarchy. Yeah, it's, uh, it, that word subversive, I think, is a good word to describe them. They were subversive in a, in a sophisticated way or in a clever way or in a way that wasn't obviously subversive. Yeah, I, I think they all, at the very least, they had to, they recognized, they'd all kind of done different sort of musical things before, I think with the exception of Cindy. Um, sometimes together, sometimes separate, kind of in the five years leading up to the formation of the band. But when they got together after having a bunch of drinks at a Chinese restaurant in their friend's basement and picked up instruments, they were able to recognize that there was something with the five of them, some sort of alchemical thing happening where neither one of them could have gotten there on their own. But together, they were able to create this thing called the B-52s. And I think they had to be both free enough and playful enough to try things and then be able to recognize, hey, this is really working. We're going to really dedicate ourselves to this, really write some songs, drive up from Athens, Georgia, the 16 hours to New York City to play a couple of shows and come back and do it over and over again, because 
this really works for whatever reason. Is Athens, Georgia, um, I mean, one thinks, of course, of Austin, Berkeley. Is it the, the, the Georgia version of Austin or the, of, of, of Berkeley? I know that David Lowry is based there, too. He teaches at the university. Yeah, he teaches his business program. Um, REM came from there. It's very much a, um, yeah, it's, it's a little blue dot, um, progressive dot in the middle of, the, of a very red state. Um, it, Austin's a very good comparison for that. Um, because the it hasn't been, mm -hmm. shall we say, outed yet, like Austin, which has become absurdly expensive and fashionable. <clears throat> Athens is a lot more expensive than it used to be. It's one of the reasons we don't live there anymore. But um, it, it is, you know, it, it is Georgia, and it is, un, it is, you know, you are dealing with extreme heat. You are dealing with extreme poverty. Uh, that that community, that county, is one of the poorest. In and rates, of course, I would assume in Georgia. Race as well. And the university is the largest employer and the university doesn't pay very much um, for particularly for staff. Um, you know, it, it used to be, and, and so as rents, but it used to be a place. And that's why I moved there, you know, 20 years ago where you could work 25, 30 hours a week at a coffee shop or bartending or whatever and easily pay your rent, easily have time to play music, do whatever you wanted to do, um, write books, etc. cetera, uh, that kind of bohemian college thing. But the rents have probably over doubled, probably tripled in the last 10 years or so. And you find more and more musicians having to work 40, 50 hours a week and not being able to tour, not being able to really get out of there, um, except for the really super privileged kids who come in from Atlanta to go to the university. Tell me about the, the name of the band. There couldn't be, I mean, it's a brilliantly named band. And of course, they're the opposite of the B, the Boeing B-52 Stratofortress uh, Horrible bomber. How did they come up? Who came up with the name? Uh, the story is Keith Strickland, who was the original drummer in the band, um, had a dream that there was a bunch of women with bouffant hairdos, the real big high beehive hairdos, and that was Southern slang for B-52. Um, I'm not sure how much of that story is, is incredibly true. I never heard anyone call it a B-52 necessarily, but it could have been a sort of regional slang. And to them, it was the, the, the beehive hairdos not necessarily the bombers itself, but I'm sure given their sort of love or, or, or interest in, in 1950s pop culture, that sort of retro futurism, it would appeal to them on that level as well. Uh, if there is one issue that's associated with the B-52s, it's gay politics where uh, mm -hmm. uh, one of their original members, Ricky Wilson, died of a, an age-related illness in 1985. Their... Um, their uh their their pinned tweet um is uh a concern about um uh the numerous new bills promoting transphobia and discrimination is that fair if if there is a a political issue if that's the right word that has driven the b-52s it's it's uh sexual rights of one kind or another gendered rights yeah, and I think they've done that in ways that were more subtle. And, you know, one of the stories in the book is kind of how they come to terms with that and how to be public and be out. You know, they didn't start off as a publicly out gay rights band. And when Ricky died of AIDS, it was announced in the paper as he died of cancer. Um, they actually kind of kept it a secret um, for his family. But still, they did those things. Uh, Keith, There were a lot of young men dying of cancer in those days. Tragically, yes, 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 there were, especially in the South. Um, and then Keith Strickland and Fred didn't come out publicly until the early 90s, 92, 93. 
Um, and that was really only when pushed by fans and journalists and things like that wanting to know why they weren't being more public about their sexuality um, to the point. But that, you know, that evolution is a really interesting thing in the book. And it does conclude with them taking these very strong public stances on trans rights, gay rights, and the rest, especially the pushback coming, coming against it. They've been pretty influential. Um, the Guardian uh, ran a piece recently uh, on famous fans saying farewell to the B-52s. Those would include uh, David Byrne, Boy George, a number of the others. How influential are the B-52s? Uh, are they a, obviously an acquired taste, but one that a lot of stars or better known musical figures actually really appreciate? They're a, a band's band. Um, yeah, very much so. And, and I, again, like I was saying earlier, I think they're they're inspirational. In you see them play and go, hey, I could do that. You know, I, I could I could get a couple of friends together, and we wouldn't have to have the most expensive equipment. We wouldn't have to have, you know, every single guitar string on our guitar. Um, we could just have a couple of chords and some cool ideas and make a band out of it. Um, that's always going to be inspirational. Always going to be picked up for people. And I think also them being from a place like Athens, Georgia, that isn't New York or Chicago or LA, is also inspiring too. Um, I think they've been more influential in terms of that attitude and, and that sort of philosophy than than musically. You know, I, I, you don't. They're, they're such a unique band. Um, when you when you hear them, it's almost it'd almost be hard to replicate that. You know. What about the individuals in the band in terms of their independent careers? Um, Cindy Wilson, for example, has a new single out, "Delirious." Uh, mm -hmm. Have they all had independent careers as well? Were they, was it, so to speak, an open marriage, the band? Yeah, I think they've all tried things, especially, um, I guess Fred does the first solo record in 85. Um, you know, they, they've never had anywhere near the same success commercially or, or even critically as they have as part of the B-52. <laughs> um, you know, I, I think there's a real... They, they complement each other really, really well, when, especially when they work together and allow people to bring their ideas together. Whereas on their own, you know, it, you know, I, I don't have any problem with any of their solo records or anything like that. But I think that none of them would, I don't think that any of their solo careers would be as iconic if they'd gone their own way than working together as a band, as a collaborative. Uh, thinking of, about their legacy, they're winding down now. Scott, are they going to be remembered, if not as the Grateful Dead, like the Grateful Dead in terms of being remembered for their performances and their following and their relationship with their fans rather than perhaps their recording? Um, I, I hope not. I, you know, one of the, one of the real um, revelations to me as, as a, a casual fan, who had maybe the first two albums and, and knew the singles and things like that, was seeing just really how interesting their, their recorded output was. Um, when you listen to it over the, the course of an entire day, you see a real depth and breadth that you don't see in, you know, like say, say something like Tom Petty, for example, who kind of made the same record over and over again. Um, well, I'm not sure if Warren Zanes would agree, or he certainly wrote a very <laughs> successful biography of Petty. You know, I, that's, um, you know, it, it's it, music's a very subjective uh, art form, you know, but uh, I, I would say that, you know, their records are always a reflection of where they are as people. Um, the band is very different, sometimes even different instruments from one record to the next. And there are times when they were very fragmented. And those records are very interesting too, because it reflects the fragmentation 
Um, when I was, I wouldn't say Tom Bateman made the same record over and over again, but stylistically and in terms of what he was kind of getting at, I think as a songwriter, I don't think really changed a whole lot from the 1970s all the way through. Um, this sort of platonic ideal of Birdsey and Dylan pop without the ultra challenging parts of either one. Um, you know, at least that's how I hear it anyway. Um, but, you know, for them, I think that those, those records are very, very interesting and, and have very com complex emotions of looking forward, looking back, looking from, from different angles, different perspectives on things. Um, you know, I, I would hate to see them, just because they've been a live band for so long, be reduced to being just a live band. Yeah. They, they've been around a long time, and in, in the period they've been around, the, the industry's changed dramatically. I know David Lowry, their fellow artist in, in Athens, Georgia, has very strong feelings on the internet revolution and the role of big tech in undermining the music business. Have the B-52s, uh, have they articulated strong feelings about sharing and the online revolution in music? It's harder and harder to be the B-52s. I mean, kids now who wanted to become the B-52s would really struggle to get a, a record contract to make a living. Yeah, they have talked about it. They did an album, uh, like a comeback album in 2008 called Funplex, um, which was their first album together since 1993 and their first album, including Cindy since 1989. And um, it, it, it did well, it was in the top 10, but it barely broke even in terms of the expenses. And Fred complained vociferously about people downloading music, getting it for free, um, coming to shows and already knowing the words of the songs before the album was out even. Um, now one could argue for the B2C's legacy band, um, the album coming out drove, you know, they played a bigger audiences than they would have, say, three or four years ago, and they were kind of seen as a nostalgia act at that point. So maybe it was, in terms of a long view, cost-effective to make the album, even if it didn't technically make a profit through sales. Um, but that's certainly not something that's available to your average band starting in Athens, Georgia today. That's something where they have the name recognition to get their name out there from having established that career back during that brief period from, you know, 1965 to 1995 when musicians could make a living at it. So where are we now with the B-52s? A, 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 a USA Today piece on them uh, from May of this year suggested that it's definitely the end of our career. They're winding down in Las Vegas at the Venetian Resort. I'm not sure whether they're humored by it. It seems an appropriately uh, ironic venue to end their career. Are they finished? Are they finishing or will they be finishing for the next five or ten years um i imagine this i mean it, it, on your um screenshot there it also says chattanooga tennessee so i think as long as there's an audience for them and as, as long as people come to the shows and huntington beach actually huntington beach california there. yeah november 18th that one's sold out so you know i hope you all got hope you got your tickets already um i i, I think that it's you know they haven't released any new music in 15 years and I, I don't see them. Keith Strickland, who provided the music after Ricky died, became the primary guitarist and songwriter. Um, he retired from the band, I guess, about maybe eight or 10 years ago, just as far as touring and stuff goes. He just lives in Key West. So unless they're all going to get together and make records, they are basically just a, a tribute act with the three singers on stage. It's a tribute or, to themselves, though. As, as a tribute to themselves. But, you know, it, it's, a, it, you know, it, it's um, having played music before. 
if you're not making new music, you are kind of a cover band in a way. You're just kind of covering. Well, what do you song. think of this? You, you know, your first book on on music. Um, these people who were once young, whether it's the B-52s or Bob Dylan, I saw when in his 80s uh, in mm -hmm. Santa Cruz and New Orleans a year or two ago. I'm going to see Bruce Springsteen in December, 70-year-old in San Francisco. What is it about this music that means that these these careers never end until they actually die? Charlie Watts, we can't see anymore. He's dead, but you can still go and see the Rolling Stone. It's... Um... You know, I, I think people have to make a living. You know, and uh, well, I don't know. If Bruce Springsteen or, uh, or 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 Mick Jagger really need the money, do they? Uh, Bruce Bruce needs a lot of money on this recent tour, didn't he? Well, he he makes, but I don't know if he needs yeah. it. Well, I mean, he, but I he, mean, how he, many how many guitars or motorcycles can you buy? You know, that's a great question. Um, you know, it seems in our society, people never have enough. You know, um, I mean, Bruce got a, got a lot of flack for the ticket prices he charged on his tour. And his response was basically, I want to get paid what everyone else is getting paid. So either he needs the money or at least he wants the money. Um, I, I hope it makes him happy, you know. Um, you don't yeah. seem very happy about that. I, I have no strong feelings either way. I wouldn't pay for it. I mean, all, you know, the, all the best shows I ever saw in my life, I paid. Do any of these people, though, are they saying anything anymore? Warren Zanes, who's a huge fan of Springsteen, believes, he said to me on the interview, that he thinks Springsteen will come out with another major piece of work eventually on death, um, maybe his right. death before he dies. I think Leonard Cohen's last album uh, was a magnificent statement of, of death. Um, but do I most of these old guys, mostly men, but some women, do they have anything to say? I mean, Joni Mitchell's back as well. I was going to bring her up. I think... Um... Yeah, I mean, you never know. You know, I mean, there's, there's I, it's, I, I hate to generalize about all, all kinds of people and things like that. I think some people are collecting a paycheck, and I think some people are collecting a paycheck until they think it's something to say. And um, anyone's capable of making great art, you know, uh, I, whether the in terms of the B-52s, it's still collaborative. You'd have to have them all in the same room, and you have to have them kind of all wanting to make that thing happen. You know, one person can do it on their own, or, or two people can do it on their own. I think a solo songwriter like Leonard Cohen or Bruce Springsteen you know, can pick up a guitar, write a song, and the song is complete. Um, it's a different process. Um, although I do know that Cohen was more prolific towards the end of his life, in part because of the financial troubles he had, or at least he admitted Yeah, that. but I think it's sort uh, of, he was never a traditional rock and roller, and maybe the older he got, the wiser he became, and more of a poet. Mm -hmm. I mean, he began as a poet and ended as a poet in many ways. Um, um, yeah. uh, but... You know, I'm a big I think as far, as far as the message to the audience and, and why they continue to, to pull a big audience, I think the message is ultimately, hey, look, we're still alive. You know, you're alive. You know, the audience is alive. We're alive. And we're here. And people. Yeah, I don't know what's worse, the artist or the audience. The audience gets older as well. The, the Who, of course, famously sang, <laughs> we hope, well, I hope I die before I get old, uh, which is now we can look back very ironically. Keith Moon died before he got old, but nobody else did. No, and they had their first farewell tour in 1982, I believe. Who? The Who? The Who. The, the Who had a farewell tour in 82 or 83. Um, get your tickets now. You'll never get to see The Who again. And then, you know, you wait a little bit of time and there's another uh, farewell tour, you know? Yeah. Well, it's it's an interesting history, an interesting history of a, of a, of a, of a rock band, the B-52s, that most people don't know. What did, f finally, um, finally, uh, Scott, what did you learn? This is your first book, first biography of a, of a music artist. You've done a lot of different kinds of writing. 
Mm -hmm. I've even done karaoke. What did you learn from the process of doing a biography of a, a reasonably well-known rock and roll band? It's a great question. I learned that I really enjoy interviewing people and I really enjoy listening to people's stories. And as a writer going into it, I always enjoyed sitting at a computer and typing my, my really deep, intelligent thoughts and showing you know how smart I was or trying to whatever. And it was interesting doing interviews with people, being quiet, not trying to prove anything, and really learning about people's stories and open up. Um, you know, there, there's some incredible stories people told us about Ricky and, and about um, the band in the, in the early days and, and Ricky's death and things that were, you know, you, you want to go cry afterwards. And that was incredibly moving for me as a person just to experience that. Um, as far as what I learned, um, I, you know, I really like um, people's stories are just fascinating, you know, and, and the thing about the, the, this book right here is that I knew going into it, it had all the elements of a great novel. I mean, there's so much tragedy there. There's an incredible commercial rebirth. Um, there's inner band disharmony and inner band harmony and the relationships within the people with the people changing. And there's never been a band quite like them. And it was really cool to write that story.